Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Welcome back, everybody. We have mm, um, we're back. officially made it to episode 20, which is Ayo. a little bit of a milestone. <laughs> I, I feel like it is. Yeah. It's like the second uh, double digit type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we started this. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We started this in March and we've been doing it bi-weekly because that's what our busy schedules can allow it's uh our lives I really don't know um yeah I really don't know how we would have done this if we did it like every week (laughs) I don't know how people do it weekly (laughs) don't (laughs) yeah no I don't know either it's it's so much work (laughs) it really yeah I did not realize how much work it would be Mm -hmm. I mean I kind of knew and I was kind of like somewhat ready for it but I'm very glad that we stuck to bi-weekly because uh, I yes. we're, we're both work full time. I do re- my own research for my job on the side. So it's like all I do ever do is <laughs> research things. So no, here we are. <laughs> um, but you're an expert in it. I, I guess something like that. So uh, how are you? How's uh, I saw your pictures from the some kind of conference women in stem the surf rider yeah it was a a conference for surf rider florida chapters so uh they hosted it in four keys so we were at sea base which is like boy scout sea base in uh, my brother did that yeah oh fun yeah Yeah, so (laughs) we were there it was friday saturday and sunday and um I didn't do anything Friday because it was like Friday after work and I had to work. So I went up Saturday morning, was there all day, spent the night at my friends up there, did it this morning until like noonish, noon 45 ish, and then had lunch with some of the headquarters staff and um, then came back home, opened my front door to the trash can being knocked down <laughs> because my dog decided to throw a fit while I was away. And then I pretty much deep cleaning the house as much as possible. Come on, Waylon. It's like trying to get up on the bed right now. And um, yeah, and then showered and now I'm here. And the time change is really kind of messing me up. I took like a 20 minute nap before I showered. Oh yeah, because I was confused because I woke up at like 6.40 today and I was like, I really want to sleep in, but I can't. And then I was like, oh, that's right. (laughs) 
and now (laughs) now it's like super dark and I'm like why am I so tired it's only seven (laughs) o'clock yeah (laughs) yeah I'm all messed up it's all messing me up for sure yeah so uh yeah we've just been hanging around the house and uh cleaning up from Halloween and then putting some of the other rooms together that we haven't gotten to yet so that's been nice and I went um to go buy a bunch of Christmas decorations have not put them up I love it have not put them up I can't I think yeah you can't I can't till after Thanksgiving so is that like a a you thing or the Corey thing well this year is kind of a both of us thing because I want to keep all of my little fall decorations that I bought up because I only got one month of it because we moved in September but uh most of the time it's a Corey thing (laughs) that's funny (laughs) he's a grump I uh literally the the day of Halloween on the 31st I texted my boyfriend and I was like so now that Halloween's over when do you think I can put the Christmas decorations up <laughs> and he was like Haley it's so Halloween <laughs> I was like well I mean the day is like done like it's here it's gone like you know whatever mm-hmm. and uh he's a very much not till after Thanksgiving type of person as well yeah I think and, that's the um, general guy thing I just think it's funny because like I want to put the Christmas tree up already and like get Christmassy and have like fun little magical like spirits mm-hmm. around. So mm-hmm. especially after like all the stress that I've been going through the past two months, I just feel like that would make me feel a lot better. So yeah. Yeah. And like, it'll definitely be up as soon as we get back from Thanksgiving with my family. Like <laughs> it'll be up. <laughs> yeah. So I, sure. I feel you. Yeah. Um, so much work all the time. Yeah. I've got, um, fish in the wet lab right now. So my weekends are kind of a little bit shot in the sense that I can't go anywhere like away from this area because I have to go in every single day and feed and take care of them. So that'll happen. That'll end. What kind of fish do you got in the wet lab? I have a red drum, which are a very popular sport fish down here. So I have juvenile red drum and basically we're doing a growth study to kind of look at the impacts of uh, releasing them from our hatchery program at certain sizes and during certain seasons to see like Mm. which uh, sizes have better survival during which seasons, um, which ones have better growth during which seasons. So interesting yeah so uh we have this really big tagging them yes I did tag them with very tiny uh coated wire tags oh you did coated wire yeah that's cool because they're only like 35 millimeters oh yeah they small (laughs) yeah they're tiny but uh I've uh I feel like now that I've done that I feel like I can tag just about anything yeah I feel like coated wire is like hard <laughs> so it's good for you steep- I've only ever done pit and acoustic so I don't yeah. know what the coded wire life is like yeah it's a steep learning curve like once you get it it's fine but like getting it takes a lot of practice um I remember that like when I first was trying to pull otoliths out of uh, juvenile American eels under yeah. a microscope and 
Their yeah. head was like the size of your pinky nail, and you're trying to like pull out an otolith from them. And it's like, <laughs> I'm new at this, very, very new at this. It's my yeah. first like marine science job. <laughs> I'm a baby. It's hard. I'm a baby. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that doing that work definitely prepared me for stuff like this because I have developed very fine motor skills, which I'm very proud of. But um, then I just keep challenging myself to harder and harder things because I'm like, well, if I could do that, I can do. This. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Oh, and for all of our listeners, as a reminder, otoliths are ear bones in um, fish, and you can cut into them and read them like tree rings to figure out how old a fish is because they deposit um, bone as they grow. So, yeah, yeah, fun that, facts. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's my layman's version of what an otolith is. Um, so. I did find this little story and I'm not 110% sure about the facts, but I did hear about it on another podcast um, oh, this week. Morbid? Not morbid, actually. Um, Surprising. Uh, I know. I <laughs> always get my tidbits from morbid. No, um, <laughs> it's one of the art- or one of the uh, um, podcasts Dark in their network um it's called oh. that spooky and if you're not listening to it you have to because they're just these two it's a gay couple and they're fucking hilarious and they just tell all kinds of different spooky stories it can be like true crime but they've also like they do paranormal they've dipped into like some of the survival and tragedy stories that we've done oh um, yeah yeah which is kind of fun um so i got this from theirs um, it's called it's spooky that's spooky that's spooky I have to look yeah it um, and they're canadian so i'm learning a lot about canada <laughs> Ooh, you're such nice people i know yeah so one of their little interest stories this week was apparently this guy was eaten alive by piranhas what yeah which I mean, you're like, well, yeah, doesn't that happen all the time in the jungle? But it do- actually doesn't happen all the time. Um, I know everyone thinks of piranhas as like these like crazy man-eating fish and they'll just rip a, you know, animal to bones within minutes. And they can do that. However, a lot of the times they're pretty shy fish unless they're whipped into a frenzy. Um, so it's not super common for a person to get eaten by a piranha okay um so this guy though was uh fishing with his friends he's 30 years old um at a lake in uh southern brazil and um so there was a i guess they disturbed a nest of bees or a hive of bees and so all of the men jumped into the lake to escape the bees, but then they realized that the lake was full of piranhas. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> not great. Um, no. So the two friends managed to swim away to safety, but because they were kind of stirring up the water, it kind of triggered the piranhas to go into a frenzy And so they went after this man and um, they found his body a few hours later, um, like washed up on shore. Um, And the man's body, they said, was disfigured by the piranhas, which tore apart um, some parts of the body, including the face. Um, 
so the authorities um, are saying that it's not clear whether the man died from drowning or from the piranha attack. Um, but they did say that the man was found in a position that is commonly seen in drowning. So it's likely that his wounds were so severe that he couldn't actually swim to wow. safety. Yeah. So, or I wonder like if he like was like ugh, gasping from being hurt underwater and like choking mm-hmm. underwater and everything too. So like drowning himself that way. Yeah. I mean, they're not entirely sure, but it's, it's very it's creepy. <laughs> it's very, that is, it's spooky. That's yeah. spooky. Yeah. Um, so the article goes on to say, like I said, piranhas rarely attack humans, but the attacks can be fatal if they happen. Um, they cite another incident in 2015 where a six-year-old girl, Adrilla Munez was found dead in Brazil. Um, uh, after she was feasted on by a large group of piranhas. So it's something that does occasionally happen if uh, there's enough, you know, frenzy and stirring up excitement in the water um, near a school. Um, so piranhas are native of South America. Um, and they've actually been found in parts of the U.S. in the last few decades, yeah. um, specifically in florida (laughs) i said get the fuck out of here why does everything happen in florida (laughs) because well it's one of the few actual tropical areas in the contiguous united states so when tropical animals get released they do a lot better than say you know farther north so people have piranhas in aquariums and then release them and then you have piranhas in floridian swamps so I'm Super cool. literally about to type in piranhas in Florida, and the first thing that pops up is piranhas Pompano Beach, which is <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> so that's fun. Yeah, I don't know how um, like salinity tolerant they are. I previously assumed that they were like strictly freshwater, but maybe they're estuarine. I don't know. We're gonna look this up right now because I want to know. Officials confirmed a red-bellied piranha infestation might be spreading in South Florida after two sightings in the past month, reports the Palm Beach Post. Yeah, you're welcome for a new <laughs> new thing to freak out about. <laughs> the little critters with a mouthful of razor-sharp teeth were probably someone's pet released into the wild, officials said. Ooh, um, research shows that piranhas have adapted to salt water. <laughs> no. Sick. No. Love that for us. Yeah, so uh, if you're in Florida, um, just, you know, keep your eyes out for schools of piranhas. It's unusual that they attack humans, but if there's enough splashing going on in the water, it could very well happen. So that's my little. So uh, interesting. Yeah. I actually had potentially another story from a friend of mine, but he hasn't written it in yet. But I have to tell you about it anyway, because I'll know you'll get a kick out of it. Oh, yeah. So um, we were out doing um, sampling. I'm doing this project uh, with Inland Fisheries 
Um, I'm coastal and we're doing a joint project on American eel actually, which is an estuarine species. So, and is also catadromous. So that means they, uh, come go offshore, um, in the ocean to spawn in the Sargasso sea. And then the babies come and swim inland and into, uh, American rivers on the East coast and the Gulf coast. Um, and so we're doing a project on that. We're getting to talking about you know, going and seeing different places. We were talking about Virginia and he was saying, Oh, I'd love to go there. And we're talking about Shenandoah and stuff. And he's like, it's a pretty like karst heavy region too. And I was like, yeah, there's a lot of show caves. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. And so he's like, yeah, that'd be cool to see. And I was like, yeah, I I like only like to go into a show caves. I don't think I could ever do any real spelunking because I'm very claustrophobic. And he was like, yeah, this one time in grad school, um, I was helping out a friend do research on hydrology in the uh, cave system. And he said, it wasn't like a very well explored cave system. He was like, it, it was very, you know, tight and dim and dingy and muddy and clay filled walls. And I'm just thinking in my head, what does this sound like? <laughs> yes. <laughs> What does this sound like? Yeah. So it wasn't Nutty Putty because this was in Texas, but um, I guess his friend had him go through a squeeze and he was fine on the way in, but on the way back, he had a panic attack because the way his body had to go through was different in reverse. So it was a little bit tighter, if that makes sense. Um, Uh. Yeah, it doesn't make so. sense, and that's why that should freak me out. So he said he was on his belly, basically dragging himself forward with his fingers and having a panic attack at the same Ugh. time. And I was like, oh, oh God. Um, obviously, he made it out because, you know, I had a conversation with him last week. But um, I proceeded to then tell him about Nutty Putty, and he was like... <laughs> just laughing nervously like oh my god (laughs) I can't believe I did that (laughs) (laughs) that's what happened to me (laughs) oh my goodness yeah that I would lose my mind so I thought that that was pretty funny um it's funny it's funny because like I hate caves so much and like I can feel his anxiety from here so So, yes, Texas is a very karst-heavy region as well. There are a lot of show caves and otherwise down here. And we have been to one show cave, and it was really cool, but I'm good with that. That's fine with me. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So do we have anything else to talk about before we jump into the story? Um, No, I don't think so. All right. There wasn't even really anything locally around here, so I don't know. Okay. So I think we're good. All right. So, you know how I said I was going to do some survival stories again? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of lied. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a reason okay. why we're doing this one, and it's because we're very near to the anniversary of this incident. And it is one my dad and my uncle actually have suggested that we do. Because it happened on the Great Lakes in Michigan, which is where my entire family is from. So, yeah, so we're all Michiganders, which, yes, that's what you call, you know, those folks up north. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so I grew up uh, kind of knowing the story, but mostly just because my dad would sing this song in a big, loud, booming, like dad, like singing voice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, and there's a song of that, that same name by the folk artist, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. And I just remember my dad singing this song all the time when we were kids, um, probably because it was such a significant thing that happened in that part of the world during, you know, when he was growing up. So I sent you the YouTube video of the, um, song and we're not going to play it on here because I don't want to get copyright issues, but if you want to listen to the first couple of stanzas and then picture my, you know, my dad singing this in a big old baritone, (laughs) like literally shaking the house. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we'll pause for you to listen to it. So describe the kind of vibe, I guess. Um, (laughs) It's more like a sea shanty in my brain, Mm -hmm. a very light sea shanty. Sounds relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. But he he wouldn't sing it relaxing. It was literally like. (laughs) Well, I mean, when your dad sing it, it's probably not relaxing. But when what's this guy's name? What's his name again? Gordon Lightfoot. (laughs) Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, when he's singing it, it sounds pretty nice. Yeah, well, and there, there's a big reason that it sounds like a sea shanty, and that's because um, the Great Lakes literally look like an inland sea. So oh, I don't true. know if you've ever been up there before. I have not, but um, I've seen pictures. <laughs> you literally cannot see the other side of the lake if you're you know standing at um some of the wider points um it, it's like okotobi down here i'm sure but like 10 times bigger like remember mm-hmm. you know when we were out on the chesapeake bay you know you could kind of see the eastern shore you can't mm-hmm. you can't do that here oh wow huge um so like i said they look like an ocean especially when you're on them um, there are the biggest lakes in the world by land area covered. Um, Lake Baikal in Russia holds the most water because it's the deepest, but the Great Lakes cover the most area. Um, and like, so if it wasn't for the fact that you don't get salt in your mouth, if you decide to swim in the super freezing cold waters, you would honestly think you're at sea when you're out there. Um, oh gosh. I used to go, or my parents used to take us to this island called Mackinac Island, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, you heard of it? I know that one b- because my best friend's grandparents live there. Oh, that's so cool. There. It's so or, cool. I think they lived there because she would always go there in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Or like It was like their family trip. So I do know of Mackinac. I've never been there, but I have heard it quite yeah. a few times. And I hear it's great. It's this beautiful, like island where you can't bring vehicles there's like five vehicles still on the island one of them being like an ambulance you know like things you need um but uh everything is either like by carriage by horseback or by bikes and that's the only way you can get around the island which is fun but it's a very like it reminds me almost of like a coastal new england town with like all yeah for sure 
like Victorian houses and like the rocky beaches and stuff. So when you're there, it definitely feels like you're actually like in a coastal town. It's really bizarre. Yeah. Um, but you're in, you know, the Midwest. <laughs> it's real weird. <laughs> so these huge monstrosities were carved out by the last ice age and hold 21% of the world's fresh water. Oh, wow. 21%. That's like, that's 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 like almost a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And the rest of it is mostly in like ice sheets and stuff. So it's not even in mm-hmm. the other lakes and rivers really. Um, so all of the lakes are connected and there's five of them. All of the lakes are connected by a series of rivers and locks. And then they are ultimately connected to the ocean uh, via the St. Lawrence river in Canada. Um, and because of this, they actually serve as such a very important waterway into the interior of North America. So because they are so big, ocean traveling barges can actually sail down the St. Lawrence and through the lakes, making it all the way to like interior cities like Toronto, Detroit, and Chicago. Um, and these cities have like big ass ports, like actual big ports <laughs> because mm-hmm. of stuff like this as well as like smaller cities you know like Duluth and um some of these smaller cities that line the the lakes and that is just kind of mind-blowing to me because I always picture the Midwest as like you know corn as far as the eye can see right <laughs> yeah you don't really think of like this type of scenery yeah um So these big ocean barges, you would think, would be relatively safe um, once they'd entered the Great Lakes, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're, you know, not on the open water. They're somewhat protected. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, though. Um, (laughs) I'm listening. uh, So those lakes can sling around waves just like any good old-fashioned ocean can. In fact, because they are so deep and because they are surrounded on all sides by land, the wind pushing around the water can get some really big rollers going because it'll just hit the land on one side and then make an even bigger wave that'll hit the land on the other side and go kind of back and forth, which is actually something that can happen in the Chesapeake Bay too. I remember we would get the wind going a certain way it was really dangerous to be out there because of the way you know the waves would be hitting the land back and forth and just getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. so it's actually not that safe <laughs> um so and in storms um waves can be as tall as 33 feet or taller which is pretty much what you could see out on the open ocean as well mm-hmm. um So those ocean-going barges still have a lot of things to worry about before they can reach a safe port on the Great Lakes. Um, So another fun fact, um, which state has the most coastline in the contiguous United States? I feel like it would be Florida or California. It's not. It's Michigan. Freaking Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely surrounded by Great Lakes. It also has the most lighthouses. That's... A fun fact. Yeah. Um, honestly, I just Googled Great Lake scenery as you were telling me that. And there's a bunch of lighthouses in these photos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is very like a very coastal vibe. It's it's really interesting. 
So I almost wonder if it's because I'm from Michigan is why I love the ocean so much, which is weird. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, so like I said, the reason I know about this tragedy is because my dad sang that song all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a fairly well-known folk song or sea shanty, especially in the Great Lakes region. And one of the most poignant lines in the song is the lake, it is said, never gives up her dead, which is eerie, very accurate. Um, one, because the lakes are so deep. And two, because they are so cold, it's very hard to recover anything from shipwrecks unless they wreck on a shoal or something shallow. Um, And so there's a lot of like creepy Americana, creepy history kind of surrounding all of the many, many wrecks on these lakes. And there are a ton, probably as many or getting close to as many as you would see off of Hatteras or off Cape Cod. Um, There's a lot of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. That's wild. Yeah. And it's something you just don't think about at all. But yeah, um, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't have thought about that, honestly. Yeah. There's a lot. But we're going to talk about the Edmund Fitzgerald because it is but one. I, I just know nothing about the Great Lakes. Well, now you're learning. We're learning. <laughs> I'm here to teach you all of my knowledge of the Great Lakes, which honestly, for somebody who has Michigan in their heritage, I really want to learn more and I'm trying to learn more about it because it's this really unique ecosystem that um, is unique to this area of the world and found nowhere else. Okay. So Edmund Fitzgerald is probably one of the most famous wrecks of this region. Um, And this story begins on November 9th in 1975. So pretty recently. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. My dad was growing up um, down near Ann Arbor in Michigan. And um, so he would have definitely seen this happening on the news. So this is why I think to my parents and my aunts and uncles, this is like such an important story. Um, So a low pressure system was developing on November 9th on the Great Plains. Um, In 36 hours, the storm had moved into the Great Lakes region where the Edmund Fitzgerald was making its way from a port in Wisconsin on the western side of Lake Superior, which is the biggest lake in um, in the Great Lakes, and it is the one that's farthest north as well. Um, so they're making its way from a port in Wisconsin, um, moving towards the Sault Ste. Marie locks that separate uh, Lake Superior from Lake Huron, which Lake Huron is the only uh, Great Lake I've actually seen in person. So, <laughs> um, so the Edmund Fitzgerald was one of the biggest and fastest ships in the Great Lakes shipping fleet. Um, It was a freighter at 729 feet in length, crewed by only 29 men, uh, which just goes to show you that modern technology really is a marvel that you can crew a huge ship like that with only 30 guys, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was carrying over 26,000 tons of taconite pallets, which are some kind of processed iron ore. Um, and the ore was mined heavily in the upper Midwest Great Lakes region. So there's a lot of ore deposits up there. Um, so Lake Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes, like I said. 
It sits on top of Wisconsin and Michigan and below Canada um, and covers 31,000 square miles and is 1,333 feet deep at its deepest point. So that's a big fucking body of water. (laughs) That is a big fucking body of water. That's like a big bay, you know, when you really think about it. Um, So its original name in the Ojibwe language is Gichigumi. Uh, which it's means gumi. I know it's a goo. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a funny word um yeah which if you listen to the first uh couple stanzas or lines of the song they uh talk about it being called Gichigumi, um and that means uh great sea um mm-hmm. so edmund fitzgerald's moving towards the sault saint marie locks um and was in communication with the anderson which was a ship that had departed to harbors, Minnesota for the majority of this event, which is why we know what happened to the great fits during the storm. So if you want to look at our little pictures real quick, I don't really have a lot for this one, um, but yeah, have- I started doing my own Googling because I didn't see a lot of photos and I was like, maybe this is a bad idea. Uh, no, <laughs> not this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can see on the first slide uh, the picture of our big boy, and that is a massive vessel. Like it's huge. Yeah, it's really large, large and in charge. It's um, like the uh, evergreen. <laughs> yes, like the evergreen. <laughs> oh my god, I was glued to that story for weeks because I just was like, this is insane that this one little ship is just destroying like world um, trade, basically. <laughs> One of our friends went as the evergreen for Halloween this year. Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> if you have a picture, I want to see it because that's hysterical. I do. Yeah, I'll get. I'll send it to you later. But yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's like a big old barge with um, a tower, uh, control tower at one end um, and a little smokestack on the other. And in between are basically all of the compartments where you would store the iron ore, whatever you're shipping. Um, And then on page two, you can kind of see the route they were taking from Duluth um, all the way through Lake Superior and then down through Whitefish Bay and into the Sault Ste. Marie locks. Um, Fun fact, my dad went to college on that little peninsula that juts into Lake Superior. That's where his school was. (laughs) So it's, you know, very up close and personal. Um, that's where, uh, Michigan tech is. If anybody wants to go freeze their ass off, um, during their college years, <laughs> it gets very cold. Sounds like a great time. Yeah. I mean, he had a blast. All right. So that's where we're at. Both ships okay. were aware of the storms heading their way. So they chose to take the route along the Northern Canadian shore, which would provide them more protection from the wind than the Southern shore, which was basically getting like the full blast. Mm-hmm. Um, so by late afternoon on November 9th, um, 58 mile per hour wind, mile per hour winds were blowing across the lake um, with Anderson reporting that it was gusting hurricane force winds of 86 miles per hour oh jesus like that's more wind than i experienced during our little hurricane we had this year yeah (laughs) it's more um actually like a phenomenon that happens in this region they call white hurricanes 
um, because they're essentially hurricane force storms and they form cyclones like a hurricane does, but they are cold and they bring snow. So it's like, let's add the shittiness of a hurricane and the shittiness of a blizzard and put it together. And this is what you get. Sounds miserable. Right? Um, And they typically start to arise after November. So the shipping season for the Great Lakes typically closes um, by the end of November. Um, So at this point, seas were rising at uh, 12 to 16 feet. But both captains had experienced these conditions before. Uh, Captain McSorley was a well-respected member of the Great Lakes shipping fleet at uh, 62, he was given the honor of captaining the biggest and fastest ship in the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald or the Great Fitz. So this was kind the of like the, the Great Fitz. If it fits, it sits. <laughs> <laughs> so this ship was pretty much like the pride of the Great Lakes fleet too. Like it, the, it was like the biggest, best one. Um, so this whole story kind of has like Titanic vibes, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So um, after they moved along the northern shore of Lake Superior, they would have to sail south towards Whitefish Harbor, which is an area of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, um, where they would a- be able to shelter until the storm had passed. So it's kind of like a little sheltered harbor area. If you look at the map near Whitefish Point, At the very bottom, you can see Whitefish Bay. Mm -hmm. So that's where they were trying to get to. This would force them to go treacherously close to Caribou Island and the dangerous Six Fathom Shoal, which was a shallow and rocky area with only nine feet of clearance for a ship's hull, which, by the way, was not enough for the Fitzgerald. I want to say that does not seem like a lot of space. No, (laughs) like most regular normal little boats (laughs) may not able to deal with that um and these ships are like the big barges do have a shallower hull than like a cruise ship for example but still they're huge so nine feet is not enough um so by this time uh the anderson and the fitzgerald are 10 miles apart it's whiteout conditions so they can't really see um, and this caused the Fitz to become invisible to Captain Cooper, who was captain of the Anderson. Um, he could only see the Fitz on radar now. Um, so he knew something was wrong because the Fitzgerald was far too close to Six Fathom Shoal on his radar. Well, it looks like they uh, almost made it to Whitefish Bay. Yes, they got very, very close. The problem is, you know, they came very too close to some shoals and that is often a, you know a lot of people think well oh a big wave takes them and takes them all the way down to the bottom and it's like no sometimes it's just because you scrape bottom um, yeah which i think we have all as um fisheries biologists have uh, run aground and it's terrifying enough in a tiny boat <laughs> i just can't even imagine what it would be like in a big one everyone's got a run aground story that's what i've learned mm-hmm Mine was this summer. Uh, accidentally hit a oyster reef. That was a good time. That sounds like a great time. Mine was in Utah where I flew out of the boat. Or nearly flew out of the boat. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, what was funny is I watched my husband almost do the same thing because we were working together. And he knows that bay intimately way more than I do. And I almost watched him do the same shit. <laughs> 
because there's no markers out here. It's insane. Yeah. I don't like it. Um, so anyway, uh, at 3.30 that afternoon, so this is happening during the afternoon and not at mm-hmm. night, um, Captain McSorley of the Fitzgerald radioed Cooper saying, Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list, which means that the ship was leaning to the right or the left, which is, you know, dangerous in wave conditions. Um, I'm checking down. Will you stay by me until I get to Whitefish? So what this meant was that the ship was listing heavily with heavy seas crashing over um, the lower side, and there was likely water coming into the hold. Um, And according to Anderson, the ship had likely bottomed out or hit the shoal. Um, Cooper asked McSorley if the pumps were running. And McSorley informed him that they all were. So that's the bilge pumps, basically, to remove water out of the hold. So that's Mm -hmm. good. Um, But by now, the wind was gusting up to 100 miles per hour. um, And the radio beacon at Whitefish Point uh, went silent. So that's basically the lighthouse radio (laughs) um, at Whitefish Point went silent because the storm cut their power. So they didn't have communication with the land side of things they're kind of out there on their own in whiteout conditions love that but it's 1975 so they have radar which is helpful oh yeah technology is kind of yeah that's the thing that makes the story nuts is that their radio contact they have radar it's it's not like this happened in the 1800s although there are a lot of wrecks here Mm -hmm. from the 1800s as well um okay wasn't there like a recent Actually, I'm not going to ask this question now. I'll ask this question later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I almost like spoiled the whole story, but by a question I was about to ask. So. <laughs> okay. So never mind. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> radio communication between the ships continued throughout the afternoon and around um, 6.55 PM, the Anderson lurched as a monstrous wave engulfed the entire vessel driving the bow to the front of the ship down into the lake this wave was some of the biggest seas that cooper had ever seen on the great lakes um soon the fitzgerald informed the anderson that they had lost both of their radar and were essentially navigating in this storm with all of its fog and heavy snow completely blind at this point so they're in dire straits Pun kind of intended. Get it? I was about to ask. I was like, (laughs) I didn't want to be insensitive, but I was also like, hey. I had to. McSorley asked Cooper if he could assist him with the radar plots until he could make it to Whitefish Point. So he's basically asking the captain of the Anderson to like navigate for them as best as he can because the Anderson can see Mm -hmm. the Fitz. The Fitz doesn't know where it is. So they're hoping that the Anderson can navigate for them essentially um right that makes sense yeah unfortunately morgan clark who was the first mate of the anderson was having a really hard time seeing the fitzgerald on their own radar because the seas had become so high that they interfered with radar reflection get out of here that's a thing that's a thing (laughs) and now you know (laughs) more than know. yeah so Clark communicated with the Fitzgerald for the last time at 7.10, to which McSorley replied, we are holding our own. Clark called the Fitzgerald again at 7.22. There was no answer. 
There would be no Mm -hmm. more responses from the Fitzgerald and the ship disappeared entirely from the Anderson's radar. Oh, I told you I lied about doing a survival story, (laughs) but I guess Anderson Anderson survived. (laughs) Right. Um, So by eight o'clock, the Coast Guard was out looking for the Fitzgerald and Anderson had actually reached Whitefish Bay safely. But by nine o'clock, the Coast Guard radioed the Anderson requesting that they go back out to join the search because they were one of the only vessels able to manage the waves. So they just got to safety and now they're calling them back out to try to look for the Fitzgerald. Um, And... Cooper called the seas tremendously large. Now, this is a man who's been like sailing in this region for decades at this point. And these are some of the biggest seas mm-hmm. he's ever seen. But after some back and forth, he considered the danger, but he said, I'll give it a try, but that's all I can do. So they went back out. Just going to give it my best go. <sighs> right. So the Anderson was the primary vessel in the search along with the William Clayton Ford who also volunteered to go out. One of the Coast Guard vessels that went out as well described the worst conditions that they had ever experienced on any ocean. So not just the lakes, oceans as well. Oh, goodness. They described uh, rolling on a wave with a 50 degree tilt, which means the ship literally went sideways before riding itself. Oh, uh, yeah. That's frightening. No, no, no thanks. I've been wrap my head around that. Yeah. I think the biggest tilt I've been on, it was like a 20 degree tilt. And that literally feels like you're going to fall off the ship. Like it's, I don't like it. <laughs> no, thank um, you. Yeah. So the search ships discovered the Fitzgerald's two damaged lifeboats. Uh, one was torn in half and other debris, debris from the ship, but no sign of the crew. The search continued in the following days, including utilizing a Coast Guard aircraft and a Navy plane equipped with a magnetic anomaly detector. But by this point, it was assumed that the ship had sank with no survivors. Uh, The Navy plane with the magnetic anomaly detector found what they believed to be the Fitzgerald, and it was broken in two halves on the seabed four days after they found this four days after the ship went down. Um, so I was actually going to do this story in conjunction with uh, the Pendleton, which if you yeah. remember was that ship that got cut in half, but like half of the uh, ship actually survived because they managed to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what happens when a ship gets uh, chopped in half and there are no survivors, um, which is entirely more common, I feel like. So on November 22nd, Um, To the 25th, a side scan sonar survey was conducted. Uh, Side scan sonar is a method of sonar in which a small sonar is towed behind a ship to create an image of large areas of the seafloor. It is often used to look for shipwrecks, but can also be used for seafloor mapping as well as biological research. We use this to look for oyster reefs um, in our own base systems. the side sand scan sonar detected the shipwreck as well, um, but there was no official confirmation that it was the Fitz. Um, and you can't really confirm officially until you have some idea of the layout of the ship or if a mm-hmm. diver can go down and actually see the name. Right. Um, so if you look on slide two, there is a computer-generated model 
of the wreck of the Fitzgerald. Um, and it is clearly hewn in two. Yes, very much in half. So the Fitzgerald sat in its watery grave for six months as the lake froze over in the winter and the search wasn't resumed until May of 1976. A submersible submersible was sent down to the wreck because it was so deep (laughs) that they had to send a submarine. Um, They have sent down to the site to confirm the wreck. Um, On May 20th, the words Edmund Fitzgerald were clearly seen on the stern of the wreck, which was upside down, uh, 535 feet deep on the bottom of the lake, broken in half. Um, None of the bodies were recovered due to cold water conditions as well as the depth of the wreck. So it's true that the lake they call Gichigumi never gives up. It's dead. Gichigumi. I know. (laughs) So um, on slide three, you can see the the image to the left um, has the name Edmund Fitzgerald, and that's the Mm -hmm. image that was taken. Um, But we will get into something kind of cool and kind of survival-y at the end. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So at the time that they discovered the wreck in 76, um, they did not have diving equipment to get down there as Jacques Cousteau was just then developing, you know, scuba basically Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, But in 1995, we had more technology. And so divers Mike Z and Terrence Teisel became the only people to dive with conventional diving gear to reach the Fitzgerald, which is really cool. Um, Teisel, yeah. yeah. Is that that what this photo was here? This photo is actually uh, a picture of what most people have to do if they want to dive on the wreck. They have to use those super intense, like, big plasticky suits that you used to dive on like oil rigs because it's that deep. So these guys dove with conventional diving gear, which is crazy. Man, their safety stop must be wild. Right. (laughs) Knowing what we know, most people will never dive below 200 feet and that's pushing it. Right. I think like the deepest I've dove is a hundred feet. Same. Yes. And I don't really want to go any farther than that personally. Um, and we're just both recreational diver, but if you do more advanced diving, you can, you know, do nitrox or other things, um, to lengthen your stay underwater or be able to go to much deeper depths, but you have to have a lot of training to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so these guys went to a depth of 535 feet, which is nuts. Um, so Tysol was a veteran diver. Uh, he dove for the Navy, uh, NASA and NOAA. Um, Z and Tysol set the record for the deepest dive ever on the Great Lakes and the deepest dive ever on a shipwreck with conventional gear. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So the pair sent, spent, sorry, a grand total of 15 minutes on the wreck (laughs) That's all they could spend at the bottom. Oh, that makes sense. Of course, their bottom time isn't going to be a lot. They're so deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Part of the whole deal with diving is that you have to make safety stops on the way back up and on the way down. So you don't get the bends and the deeper you go, the longer you have to be at those safety stops. And so if you dive this deep, you will not be able to spend any time on the bottom, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. so they spent a grand total of 15 minutes on the wreck, 
which was illuminated with heavy duty lights, which gave them about 60 feet of visibility, which is pretty good, actually. Um, the wreck was very well preserved. There wasn't even any wear on the paint because that's how cold the water is. Mm-hmm. Um, before they surfaced, they both placed their hand on the port side rail of the ship in respect of the 29 men still trapped in their metal coffin. It was the first time in 20 years living hands had touched the ship. Um, in addition to that 1995 dive, a submersible in, and divers in deep sea diving suits were sent down to the wreck to remove the bell um, from the Edmund Fitzgerald to give the crewman's family some sort of memorial for this terrible tragedy. Um, the names of all 29 crewmen have been engraved on the original bell, which now sits at Whitefish Point. Uh, no bodies have ever been removed for, from the ship as it is too expensive and too dangerous, kind of like trying to remove a body from Everest, essentially. Yeah. Um, so that's that last picture is them going to remove the ship's bell in those really I gotcha. ad- advanced, you know, basically deep sea welder kind of suits. Um, I don't know that they took pictures during that dive that Z and Tysol did just because it was so dangerous. I'm sure they just wanted to focus on yeah get doing it yeah yeah um so why did the fits sink so the u.s coast guard official report stated that the ss edmund fitzgerald sank in late superior on the 10th of november in 1975 with loss of life they also stated that the sinking was not conclusively determined but that the most probable cause of the sinking of the ss fits was the loss of buoyancy and stability resulting from the flooding of the cargo hold that caused it to list. Um, so it basically put it off balance. Mm-hmm. Um, the flooding of the cargo hold uh, took place through ineffective hatch closures as the uh, rolling seas uh, basically rolled along the deck. In order to properly seal the storage containers on deck, Huge metal clamps had to be cranked into place, and supposedly that was not done correctly, even though the crew was well-seasoned and familiar with the large ship. Very few freighter captains actually support the Coast Guard's findings, um, considering that the description of the hardworking and proud crew, they don't believe it was crew negligence. While the Coast Guard stated that this was probably the cause of the sinking, there's no official statement on how and why the fits went down. So there's some kind of nebulousness surrounding this and they don't really talk about why it was chopped in half, Mm -hmm. which I think we all kind of know that it was a wave that did it like a massive wave must've done it. Right. um, So captain Cooper of the Anderson believes that McSorley knew something was wrong or had gone wrong as the ship had passed over the six fathom shoal and believes that from that point, McSorley knew the ship was sinking and that the fits likely bought him out. And that created a stress fracture in the hull of the ship. The wreck now lies in two pieces. So it's possible that the ship actually broke in half after experiencing the stress fracture. If the ship bottomed out on the shoal or had already had a fracture, a wave crashing down on the deck of the ship would be enough force to deal a death blow to this metal giant. Um, Wowie. Which makes sense to me, personally. Yeah. 
29 men were lost when the Fitzgerald went down with no conclusive evidence to the cause of the sinking. This remains one of the most significant loss of life on the Great Lakes in the last century. Um, and certainly the greatest loss of life in the last 50 years. Uh, ships like the Fitzgerald are still in use on the Great Lakes today. And this just goes to show you that just because we have more modernized technology doesn't mean that tragedies still don't happen on the open sea and in large lakes like the Great Lakes. Wow. And that, that was a good one. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald on Lake Gichigumi. <laughs> <laughs> I I know it's great um let me do my sources before I forget oh yes please do so the articles I used were the fateful journey by Sean Lay um of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum the uh storm that sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald by Sea Grant Michigan yeah Michigan has a Sea Grant (laughs) um shipwreck I know I didn't even think about it but it makes sense because they're the lakes are so big that of course they have a sea grant. Um, an article called Shipwreck, the Mystery of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, actually, no, that was a um documentary. So Shipwreck, the Mystery of the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, on the Discovery Channel. And then an article, uh, Diver Recalls Records, Scuba Descent to Edmund Fitzgerald Shipwreck by Garrett Ellison on Michigan Live. And then I also got some of my uh, specs on Lake Superior from Wikipedia. Um, and then I also got some information about the Great Lakes and these hurricanes from a book uh, called White Hurricane. White Hurricane by David Glenn Brown, which is a nice. book of, about another incident kind of like this where 18 ships went down um, all in during one storm. So, yeah. So, wow. While you were giving your story time, mm-hmm. I this was like jogging my memory, and I swear there was like a shipwreck or some sort of thing happened like recently, not like a couple months ago recently, but like earlier this year. Hmm. Could have been last year, but I have like this vague memory, and part of me is like so tired that I don't really know if it's a vague memory of like hearing this on the news or like you telling me a story and I'm just like yeah. combining two stories. I'm trying but, to think. So, anyways, hmm. I Googled like ship recent shipwrecks or whatever I Googled. Mm-hmm. And um, Wikipedia has a list of shipwrecks for like the current year and you can go back by like month and year and everything too. Mm-hmm. So list of shipwrecks in 2021, like there's a handful. Yeah. Like, and then you get down to where uh, hurricane season is. Mm-hmm. And um, where is it? I just saw it. It was uh, Hurricane Ida, August 9th. There's uh, like, what, 10? 10 little shipwreck situations, it looks like. It, it all is like prefaced with Hurricane Ida. And then it, go, like, it says like country. It has like ship, country, and then description. Yeah. And so um, are you looking at it? Uh, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going. Is this Hurricane Ida? The barge was driven ashore by the hurricane, probably in the Mississippi River south of New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. But like that's kind of all it says for that. So it's like I don't know. I guess it's any sort of like vessel type of situation. Yeah, I don't um, know. If they also like include like smaller fishing vessels and stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, I see it uh-huh. now. Yeah, there are quite a few. There's some. 
yeah. big ships too. A lot of bulk carriers and barges that were driven like aground, basically. Mm-hmm. Shrimp and boat. And so now I'm going to click on 2020 and see what happened in 2020. 100-foot huh. trawler broke from her mooring during Ida. Oh, that was, that, the, that was the story, um, I think, that I did during uh, when Hurricane Ida happened about the guy who, like, stayed alive. Oh. It was either the trawler yeah, or the tugboat. Because you said it was a shrimp boat, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That guy survived, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's like, it happens a lot still. Um, if they're caught in the right conditions, if there's some kind of like physical flaw or issue, you know, like the crack, mm-hmm. they can definitely still sink. And especially if you go into hurricane conditions or into areas like around um, South Africa, uh, the Cape of Good Hope or around South America in uh, near um, Tierra del Fuego, you know, those waters mm-hmm. are very treacherous still. Or in, you know, Antarctica, the oceans around there are some of the most violent in the world. Um, So it's definitely possible for sure, clearly. In 2020, like January 7th on 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, a shrimp boat capsized and sank in a storm in the Pamlico Sound, which is like North Carolina Outer Banks area. Yeah. Uh, Three killed, one survivor. Maybe that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Because like, I swear it was like something recent mm-hmm. and it was like somewhere that like i know because i was like holy shit i remember what i remember seeing it and thinking to myself like oh my god like shipwrecks still happen like that mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely especially if you're in a smaller vessel i was thinking of um do you remember when that tall ship went down off hatteras um during a hurricane sandy that one always got to me because um, later on, I met people who knew cr- crew members on that boat. And like, I think everybody died. Oh, oh it was like a big bad. thing. Yeah. And then I went on a tall ship myself for my uh, sea semester um, research. And basically, you sail across an ocean in a modern day tall ships, so like a pirate ship. You learn how to sail, but then you also do like marine research so we were doing research into microplastics um on Mm -hmm. the pacific ocean but i remember talking to some of like the long-term crewmen on that boat and they were like yeah we knew people on the on that ship that wrecked during sandy oh man that's sad and i was like holy crap what am i doing out here (laughs) um so that's the one that triggers my memory but that was a while ago. That was like when I was in college. So it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a funny story too, before we close this out, my dad and my uncle and my aunt and my grandpa and grandma decided to take a little vacation um, out on a sailing vessel. Um, Cause it was my grandpa's dream to get a, a sailboat and like sail it around everywhere. This trip kind of killed that because it turns out he's pretty seasick. Um, but they went around the great lakes and they were in a storm, um, near Mackinac Island. Um, there's also a very large bridge that spans between like the mainland Michigan and the upper peninsula. And, Mm -hmm. um, they were near the bridge and the troughs of the waves were so deep that when they were in a trough, 
they could not see the bridge even though they were right next to it oh no and this bridge is massive um they also almost got run over by a barge during that storm so um one of these days i'll have to get my dad or my uncle to write in i've been trying to but my dad was like oh it was too young i don't remember i'm like bitch please you remember yes (laughs) you remember enough bitch please um but so the whole great Lakes storm uh stories run pretty deep in in our our veins i guess yeah for sure it sounds like it (laughs) um all right happy things happy things this week is ocean fest is finally coming to a close and Mm -hmm. i am going camping in jekyll island all the week after that yeah so i am going to be piecing the heck out of here and not being bothered by anybody (laughs) great that sounds great yeah honestly mine is kind of similar um so gillnet season is wrapping up for Corey, so he's almost done with the busiest sampling season of the year and while i do have projects kind of ramping up we don't have a lot of people coming to visit us or things that we have to do. Um, so we're actually going to have some weekends to just chill at the yeah. house. That's going to be so nice. Yeah. And we're just going to get some stuff done at the house and just like, you know, watch movies and drink. Get and- Christmas decorations up. Oh, after Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, so that's going to be really nice because I feel like we've just been go, 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 go for so long. Yeah, right. I uh, I feel the same way. Like, I feel like the past two months has just been like go, go, go and stress. Mm-hmm. And I am so concerned that once Ocean Fest is over, my body is just going to like release all of the stress and anxiety that I've been bottling up for the past mm-hmm. two months and I'm going to get sick. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like really trying to like hold out hope that like I'm gonna feel good enough to like go camping because like mm-hmm. the last thing I want is to, like get sick and then not be able to go camping and be stuck yeah. here yeah that's kind of what happened to us um like right after we moved is when my body finally was like okay mm-hmm. and then I got sick and then because we lived together Corey got sick <laughs> yeah <laughs> it sucked and then the next weekend his family came and then the weekend after that was Halloween of course I gotta be annoying and do Halloween big yeah so we did and it was fun you know everybody came over it was basically like a housewarming essentially yeah it was nice. it was fun. yeah but i'm tired and i'm ready oh, to yawning. <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> oh daylight savings time it's late it's what it... 10 10 20 for you yeah technically yeah, yeah. technically <laughs> so yeah i guess i mean it's time to wrap up this tale um and uh next week i promise it'll be survival actually i promise the story promise. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah we got to talk about that actually um once we're done recording but anyway um yeah. so uh where can our listeners find us our listeners can find us on instagram at mother nature will kill you podcast as the handle um also on twitter at mnwky podcast and our website is mother nature there you can listen uh to us on that website as well as spotify and apple podcasts and google podcasts and i think that's it 
Yeah. So much. And you can also submit your own um, survival story. Now, you don't have to uh, sink a giant ship in order to have your story be read. Um, we're just really looking for stories in which you had an uh, uncomfortable, maybe slightly dangerous close call um, with nature um that made you you know nervous or uncomfortable um or scared or just like wow i can't believe that happened to me um and you can submit them we have a page for that on our website um Mm -hmm. and then in addition if you want to help support the podcast um you can submit a five-star review to any of the listening platforms um it's not you know, necessarily to make us feel good, although it does make us feel good, but it is more to kind of drive the podcast up the charts so that more people will uh, listen to it. Um, so yeah, that, that about yeah. wraps it up. Um, all right. Yeah. With that until next time, stay safe, but most of all, stay curious explorers. Bye-bye. Get out of here. <laughs>